Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Samuel 4, 1b-22. The Philippines capture the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Ephek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Silo, so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. So the people sent men to Silo, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of this mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Silo with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the Ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had filled so that he could see he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled it fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled from the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman, the women attending her said, Don't despair, You've, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Well, has it ever crossed your mind to uh, go out and grab yourself some bladder rack? Or what about some cascara sagrada? Well, maybe if you have a court case looming and you're not sure of your chances of winning, you might want to sprinkle some cascara sagrada bark around your house. I know it'll make it a bit messy, 
but apparently it'll help you win the case. Or if you're planning on hopping onto a boat or flying overseas, then you might want to carry some bladder rack seaweed in your pocket. I know it's slimy and a bit gooey, but apparently it'll protect you from the sea. I don't know if you've ever come across a wizard, but if you lived in Campbell for a while, you might have bumped into a guy called Riordan Trelawn. He owned the Witchcraft Emporium on Burke Road in Camberwell. As a wizard, he's able to help you to cast a spell or even ward off some evil spirits. Uh, so in 2012, the age reported that a woman came into his shop. She was distressed, she was desperate, she needed help uh, because she believed that she had evil spirits in her home. Uh, and so she went to Wizard Trelawn. He assessed her and he concluded that she's not crazy. And so because she's not crazy, she's, he's able and willing to help her. Uh, she was just having trouble, according to his assessment. She was having trouble with the dark side. And so he put a spell together for her. Uh, from the 130 jars of herbs, he grabbed this jar and that jar and, and combined the herbs into a box and he lights it uh, in a char- with a charcoal burner. The woman is told, write down your heart's desire on this sheet of paper. Write down, focus, concentrate all your emotional energy onto this sheet of paper and write down your heart's desire. And it could be anything, but for her, it was to cast out the evil spirits in her home. And so she drops the paper into the burner, and this is what Traylon says. If it vanishes instantly, the spell has a good chance of working. Now, I don't know what you think about spells, but there are people in Camberwell and all over the place who will pay good money for this. And I can appreciate why, because for a bit of money, you can get what you want, or your heart's desire may come true, whether it's to win a court battle with some cascara, sagrada bark, or hold on to some bladderack seaweed to help you travel safely overseas, whether by plane or by sea. It's a small price to pay, isn't it? for guaranteed success and protection. And it might surprise you, but that's the sort of hocus-pocus that the Israelites got up to in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now the setting for today's passage isn't in Shiloh, where we've been over the past few weeks. The setting is now on the field towards the Mediterranean Sea, about 35 kilometers west of Shiloh. Now, the focus isn't so much on the priests of Israel, but on the people of Israel. And our attention doesn't fall on the troubles within the nation of Israel, but on the troubles that the nation of Israel faced against the Philistines. Now, chapter chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Now, the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. Now, now the Philistines were also relatively newcomers to the region. They came by sea from southern Greece. And they settled along the coastline of the Mediterranean, extending past Gaza in the south and Mount Carmel in the north. And as we continue to study 1 Samuel, we'll see over and over again, chapter after chapter, that the Philistines were a thorn to Israel's side. The two young nations were constantly at battle. And what we see in today's passage are the two battles that have been recorded for us. Uh, So verse 2, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. 
So unfortunately, in this battle, the Israelites are lost. They, they lost the battle and they lost 4,000 men to the Philistines. Now, if you were a general in Israel's army, what would you do? How would you respond to this defeat? Or if you were an elder in Israel at that time, what would you say to your soldiers to lift their spirits, to encourage them to fight on? Well, let's have a look at what the elders of Israel said in verse 3. So, so please do have your Bibles and follow along with me. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So what we see here is that the Philistines accepted their defeat, and they understood their defeat theologically. They saw their defeat as an act of God and not as an achievement of the Philistines. But they didn't understand why. You see, for them, they knew God was powerful and faithful. He showed his power when he defeated the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were far stronger, far greater, far more established than the Philistines. So if God could defeat the Egyptians, well, the Philistines would have been a cinch. And God had showed Israel his faithfulness when he parted the Red Sea and saved the Israelites. When he gave them the promised land, he showed his faithfulness time and time again to the promises of Abraham. So why did God let them down now? Why did God let them be defeated by the Philistines as they were simply trying to establish themselves as a nation in the promised land? Now, it was a great question, wasn't it? Why did God let them be defeated? But instead of being driven to Scripture to search for their answers... They were driven to superstition to look for a solution. So verse 3, let, let us, they said, bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now the ark of the covenant was a gold-plated wooden box. Uh, on top of it was a lid called the mercy seat, and on top of that were two cherubim. Uh, two angels with outstretched wings, and inside this Ark of the Covenant were the covenants of God with the people of God, the two stone tablets that Moses received on Mount Sinai. They were placed in this Ark. Now the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with God's people. That is, if God had a throne on earth, if you wanted to find God anywhere, well, this would be where you'd find him. This is where you'd go. This is where you'd go to meet with God. And it was so sacred, in fact, that if you touched it, you'd instantly die. But even so, God wasn't literally sitting on the Ark of the Covenant, was he? Just as Jesus isn't literally hanging on that cross. It was a symbol. It was a sacred symbol to remind God's people of God's covenant commitment to Israel and of God's covenant demands on Israel. But the elders of Israel were less concerned about God's covenant than they were about God's presence. You see, the elders of Israel thought, if we bring this Ark of the Covenant to battle with us, then we're literally bringing God's presence with us. And if God's present in the battle, then we'll definitely win the battle, because God will be in the battle We've got guaranteed victory. And so at best, the elders were treating the Ark of the Covenant like a lucky charm. 
like keeping some bladder rack seaweed in your pocket when you travel overseas. But at worst, the elders were cornering God, dragging him out onto the battlefield, whether he liked it or not, and forcing him to give them the victory that they wanted unless he wants to embarrass himself before all the nations and all the gods of the nations. Now this is very disturbing. You should never corner anyone, let alone corner God. You should never force anyone to do anything, let alone forcing God to give you a victory. The elders of Israel should never have gone, given into superstition for a solution. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> Sorry about that. Siri doesn't understand what I'm talking about. The elders of Israel should never have given into superstition for a solution. They should have opened up scripture for an answer. They had the right question, verse 3. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? But they had the wrong answer. The answer wasn't because God wasn't with them, but because God has set his face against them. That is, they lost the battle not because God had forgotten his covenant promises to Israel, but because they had forgotten God's covenant demands on them as the people of Israel. And so if they had opened up scriptures and read Leviticus chapter 26, they'd know that God is punishing them for their disobedience. And so from verse 14 we read, If you will not listen to me, God says, I will set my face against you so that you'll be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. Or if they open up scripture and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, they would realize that God's curse for their disobedience has come upon them. So verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God, Moses is speaking to the people of God before they enter the promised land, and he warns them, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And so if they had opened up scripture and read Leviticus 26, they would have cried out to God. They would have repented and gone to worship God in Shiloh, but instead they sent men to bring the Ark of the Covenant back from Shiloh. And if they had read Deuteronomy 28, they would have realized that they had turned their backs on God, but instead they tried to manipulate God. This is not faith, but superstition. Their concern wasn't to seek God, but to control God. They weren't trying to submit to God, but to use God. Their solution was religious magic, not spiritual holiness. But the, if the elders of Israel and Ebenezer had got it wrong, you'd hope that the priests in Shiloh would get it right. Verse 4, So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is thrown before the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, Hophni and Phinehas aren't mentioned by mistake. They're mentioned because of what's at stake. You might remember them from the past few weeks. They were priests of God, but they neither knew God nor obeyed God. And because of them, the tabernacle became a place where sins were committed rather than where sins were confessed. And if it wasn't bad enough that the elders of Israel had forgotten God's covenant, we now see that the priests of God also forgotten 
God's covenant. Because instead of stopping the soldiers from taking the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle and using it as a lucky charm, Hophni and Phinehas go with the soldiers and encourage the use of the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. And so when they arrived in Ebenezer, all the soldiers, all the Israelite soldiers, couldn't contain the excitement in verse 5. And the Philistines heard and trembled in fear in verse 7. And so what will come of the second battle? The Ark of the Covenant is now in their presence. Well, verse 10, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. It was a a terrible slaughter. If it wasn't bad enough to lose 4,000 soldiers in the first battle, with the Ark of the Covenant now present with them, their loss is far greater at 30,000 soldiers. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 11, the Ark of the Covenant was now captured. When the Israelites thought would, what the Israelites thought would bring them guaranteed success, their lucky charm, as it were, was captured by the Philistines. But do you notice what else happened? Verse 11, And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died, just as the man of God had prophesied would happen in chapter 2. Just as Samuel confirmed last week in chapter 3, so now God has fulfilled his prophecy. Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day, not in the comfort of the tabernacle in Shiloh, but on the battlefield as they encouraged the use of the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. But it wasn't just Hophni and Phinehas who died. So also their father Eli. When Eli heard the news that Israel had been defeated, that his two sons were killed, that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. He fell from his chest, snapped his neck, and died. And so ended another era in Israel's history. Now, I don't know if you've ever bumped into Riordan, Treylorn. It's less likely now because the Witchcraft Emporium has closed down. It closed down a few years ago. But even though he might have been out of business... The business of superstition is still all around us, isn't it? So apparently superstitious women in Rwanda don't eat goat meat because they fear it will make them grow facial hair. Our superstitious Filipinos don't wear red during a storm because they believe the colour red attracts lightning. And superstitious Koreans don't nibble on odd-shaped food while pregnant because they'll end up with an ugly baby. And you probably know this one, when uh, Chinese people won't buy a house that's number four because it sounds like the word death in Chinese. And so you'll give them bad luck if they were to live in that house. Now, you and I might not believe in such superstition or even consider going to a witch or wizard uh, to cast a spell. But it's very easy to become superstitious without even realising it, isn't it? This could be as innocent as knocking on wood to ward off bad luck or crossing our fingers to wish for good luck. I remember a couple of years ago when Campbell South Primary School uh, were about to have their annual fate 
And I, I bumped into a couple of the teachers here, and I said, oh, isn't the weather wonderful? It's going to be so good. And they go, stop. Don't jinx it. It's been raining out over the past couple of years, so don't mention the weather. Now, all of these examples might appear to be harmless. Uh, we might just say to ourselves, well, it's just a saying. It's what we say. Or I don't really believe it. But our words do matter, don't they? And what we express matters. As Christians, we should only speak the truth and the truth in love. When we speak, we want to express our faith in God, not in superstition, even if we don't believe it. What what we do and say should commend the gospel rather than give people the wrong idea of what the gospel teaches. You see, the Israelites didn't just think it was harmless to use the Ark of the Covenant superstitiously. They thought it was a great idea that would win them the war. But look at what happened. They transformed the God-given symbol of his presence and turned it into a quasi-magical device to force God to give them victory. And so they were defeated, not because the Ark of the Covenant didn't represent the presence of God, it did, but because they put their trust not in God, but in his presence, in a symbol. You see, God doesn't treat superstition lightly. It's not okay with God. And it doesn't sit right with God. Yet the irony is that a lot of the superstition in the Western world finds its genesis in Christian religion. So we're told that Friday the 13th is an unlucky day. And it's because there were 13 disciples at the Last Supper, uh, 13 uh, people at the Last Supper, 12 disciples and Jesus. And Jesus died on Good Friday. So Friday the 13th is a bad day. Walking under a ladder will give you bad luck because when a ladder rests on a wall, it forms a triangle. And a triangle, obviously, is God the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. And so to walk under the ladder is to break the Trinity. It's blasphemous and therefore a desecration to God Almighty. But if you cross your finger... Well, then it will bring you good luck because you made the sign of the cross. You see, like the Israelites, we can make up superstition. And often we make it up from religion. I remember when I was a kid in primary school. I would, have, I would pray every night whenever I went to bed. And I don't know why, where I got this idea from or, or why I started doing it. But I thought that if I pray to God when I get to bed and never touch the ground again, then my prayer would be sacred and God will hear it and answer it. But if I touch the ground again after getting into bed, then it voids the prayer. And I'd have to jump into bed and repray that prayer and not touch the ground again until the morning. And so I'd pray every night. And often I'd pray the same prayer every night. And I really believed it. I don't know where it came from. But I was a superstitious little kid, wasn't I? You see, the word superstition comes from two Latin words. Super, which means above. And stare, which means to stand. The word superstition is the belief and the practice of standing above the word of God. Standing above God's truth. 
And so at best, superstition endows the evil one, the devil, with too much power that he would give us bad luck. At worst, superstition attempts to manipulate God to do our bidding, to give us good luck, both of which have no place in Scripture, both of which stands over Scripture. The Israelites did it by dragging the Ark of the Covenant onto the battlefield, and by doing so, they thought they could force God, twist God's arm, to give them the victory they desperately wanted. And I did it when I prayed, when I followed a strict routine to ensure that God would give me what I wanted. You see, friends, superstition is all around us. It's so ingrained in us that we don't think twice about it. And so it might be helpful as you go about your business this week, maybe it'll be good to reflect whether there are parts of your habits, parts of the, the things you say, the things you do, that actually might be superstitious. Maybe take note of the things you do and say. Reflect on the routines and your habits. Are there elements in there that are superstitious? Do you have a lucky charm, for example? Do you carry a cross because you believe that it keeps you safe? Are there things that we do that don't actually express faith in God, but actually sit over the word of God? Is it faith at work, or is it superstition at work? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 is a good reminder here. Have nothing to do, the Apostle Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. God doesn't want our piety and ritual. He wants our repentance and faith. Now, in case you're wondering, my superstitious prayers were never answered. God never gave me what I wanted, not even once. Because my prayers weren't prayers of faith. They were superstitious prayers. And that was the case with Israel. God wasn't going to let Israel use the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. God would rather lose the battle, see his people killed, suffer the loss of face and suffer shame amongst the nations and be embarrassed by all the peoples of earth than to be used by God's people superstitiously. Can you see from that how much God hates it when we try to control him, when we approach him not by faith, but by superstition. He will not let us use him. Because for God, relating to him rightly is more important than to relating to him wrongly. And we see this with Jesus, don't we? For a time, God in Christ suffered the shame of humanity as he hung on the cross naked for the world to see. But it will also be through the cross of Christ that God's glory will actually be on full display and that he'll draw people from all nations to himself, not so that the cross can become a superstitious token to bring us good luck, but so that the cross might become the bridge between sinners receiving forgiveness from God so that we might enter a right relationship with God. You see, friends, even when God appears to be in the pits, dishonored by all his people and a laughing stock to every other people's. God is still clearly but quietly fulfilling a word he had spoken. 
In today's passage, it was the fulfillment of his word in the death of Hophni and Phinehas. And in Christ, it was the fulfillment of his word in the death of his son, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So friends, may we not be Christians who look to superstition for solutions. May we be Christians who open scripture for answers. Amen.